Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. In this very short story about the baptism of Jesus, God is doing something very special. God is revealing himself to us as the Holy Trinity. You've experienced in relationships in your life that as you get to know somebody better, You start revealing things about yourself, more intimate things. And the more you reveal about yourself and the more they know about you, the more intimate the relationship gets. And that's what's happening here in Jesus and especially in this baptism story. God is revealing something about himself that was always true, but that had not been clearly revealed before. Namely, he is revealing that he is The Holy Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is an important word for us to think about. Everybody say Trinity. It means three in one. It means that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And that this one God exists from all eternity as three persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that when Christians start talking about the Trinity Sometimes it could just feel a little extra confusing. Amen. And sometimes we can start to feel a little intimidated by all the details involved and what does it mean to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Sometimes when we're trying to understand all the details, we can start sounding kind of abstract and philosophical, like as if the doctrine of the Trinity is some cold, abstract, philosophical concept. But what I am praying we will see today is that the Trinity is not a cold, distant, philosophical concept. The Trinity is God. And specifically, the Trinity is God coming near to us, nearer than ever before, inviting us into deeper intimacy than ever before, and revealing himself to us as God for us, God with us, and God within us. I want you to think of those three Phrases. Everybody say God for us. God with us. God within us. To help us understand those three phrases and what it means that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we need to dig dig a little deeper into this story about the baptism of Jesus. So look again at verse 21. It's a short story, but it's powerful. Verse 21 says, now, when all the people were baptized And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. We'll pause right there. And before we go any further, we need to ask a question, which this text is provoking us to ask. Which is, why did Jesus go down to the river to be baptized by the prophet John? 
That is very strange. And if it doesn't seem strange to you, I need to remind you of what we talked about two weeks ago. If you've got your Bible, just lift your eyes up a few inches to Luke chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Let's remember what the baptism of John was all about. Starting halfway through verse 2, we read this. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. So that's a key word. Everybody say repentance. And then about for the forgiveness of sins. Everybody say forgiveness. John's baptism was about repentance, which means turning from evil, turning back to God. John's baptism was about the forgiveness of sins. So it makes sense when verse 21 says all the people were being baptized because all the people are sinners. They need to repent. They need to be forgiven by God. But here's the thing. Jesus never sinned. Jesus does not need to repent. And Jesus doesn't need to be forgiven because he's never done anything wrong. You don't have to take my word for it. The Bible says this in a number of places. For example, Hebrews 4.15 says this. Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. Very clear. Jesus never sinned. So why does he go to John to be baptized? John, we know, was bothered by this question because this story is told in all four Gospels. And if you go compare the other Gospels, John says, why are you coming to be baptized by me, Jesus? I need to be baptized by you. And Christians from the earliest ages have wrestled with what is Jesus doing here? Why does he go down to the river to be baptized by John? And from very early, Christians began to discern that there's deep spiritual truth here. There's many things we could say, but I think the most important and true and central thing we need to say is this. Jesus came down to the river to identify with sinners. Jesus is the sinless one. The son of God without sin who comes down to the river with John to identify with sinners. This baptism is the beginning of Jesus identifying with sinners. And as we read Luke's gospel, Luke is going to emphasize over and over that Jesus is God coming to be with sinners and to identify with sinners. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to intentionally do this over and again In ways that bother and offend and scandalize people. Okay? Let let me just give you a few examples. I'm going to go real quick. So you probably don't have time to flip with me. But you can jot down the references if you want to look them up later. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus identifies himself with a notorious sinner named Levi. And Jesus takes his disciples to go eat at Levi's house. And while they are there, some of the religious leaders start grumbling And here's what they say. Luke chapter five, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In this culture, to sit down at a table with somebody and eat and drink with them is to identify with them. It's to say we're like family. We're in the same group. And Jesus is going and hanging out with people who are known for being bad sinners, and it's bothering the religious leaders. Then again, in in chapter 7 of Luke, verse 34, we actually hear the religious leaders mocking Jesus. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
He's a friend of sinners. They think they're insulting him. But this is glorious good news. The son of God is a friend of sinners. But notice that they also think he's guilty by association. They say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Now, gluttony and drunkenness are sins. Jesus is not a sinner. We just heard the Bible saying Jesus has never sinned. And yet they think he's guilty by association. He's identifying with sinners. Then in chapter 15, once again, we read verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They think they're insulting him. Aren't you glad Jesus welcomes sinners? In Luke 19, it gets more intense because the three verses I just referenced, it was always the religious leaders who were criticizing Jesus. And if we read the Gospels, we're used to understanding that these religious leaders were really marked by a lot of spiritual pride. They tended to be pretty judgmental and self-righteous. So there's nothing unusual about their criticalness here. But often the people like the fact that Jesus hangs out with sinners because he's like one of them. He comes near to them. But most of us have our limits in how much we like God's mercy and grace. And in Luke chapter 19, all the people, the crowds, the regular sinners like you and me get mad at Jesus for hanging out with sinners because this time he's hanging out with a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was not just a sinner. In the eyes of the people, he wasn't just a normal sinner. He was a special sinner. Because Zacchaeus was a liar and a cheat who had not only sold out to Rome, but he had made himself rich, we know, by ripping people off, by stealing from people. So like everybody there had been ripped off by Zacchaeus. They're hardworking people trying to feed their families. And Zacchaeus is taking money from them. They don't like Zacchaeus at all. And Jesus goes to Zacchaeus's house and sits down like a friend with Zacchaeus. And when that happens, we read this, Luke 19, verse 7. All the people saw this. And began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Everybody's mad at Jesus now. Now that last one should make us pause and think. Church family, I want you to ask yourself a question. Don't, don't, don't answer this out loud. Just think about it. Who are the worst people that you most despise? You can see how I don't want you to answer that out loud right now. Most of us don't want to admit that we're, we're Christians, so we're used to saying we're not judgmental. But there's some people that you think of as extra bad, right? And to think about this may take us close to places of serious pain in our lives. Maybe it's someone who has hurt you personally in a very deep way. Who has traumatized you. Maybe it's a hated political figure. That you think of as the embodiment of the enemy. Maybe it's an oppressor like Zacchaeus. Someone who has actually exploited and abused people that you really care about. And now we got to ask the question, how would you feel about Jesus? Seeing Jesus enjoy a meal with that person. Sitting down with them, breaking bread with them, laughing with them. It gets a little personal, it gets a little deep when you think about it like that, but we can go deeper still because church family, here's the deeper reality. We are the sinners Jesus is identifying with. 
We are the ones who have rebelled against God and earned God's judgment, which means those people that it would really bother us to see Jesus hanging out with. They're not in a different category with us. They're in the same boat with us. They need grace and we need grace. I need grace and you need grace. Everybody say we all need grace. Those people that have hurt you, that it would bother you a little bit for Jesus to sit down and eat with them. The problem with that is they're sitting at the same table we are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners and Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God coming into the midst of our brokenness and not not just saying I still love you, but saying I identify with you. As a sinner, I'm coming near to you. And if we ask the question, why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus continue to identify with sinners in this way? We can hear the answer from Jesus own lips. The first scripture that I read to you about Jesus being a friend of sinners was from Luke chapter five. And after his critics criticize him, verse 31 and 32 says, Jesus answered them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus is God coming near to us. God with us. God coming to identify with sinners so that he can heal sinners and forgive sinners and transform sinners. The baptism is the beginning of that. The end of it, the culmination of it is his cross. Think about the cross of Jesus. We got there's a cross right here. There's a cross right there. The reason Christians talk so much about the cross is because the cross is God revealing the depths of his love for us. The cross is God revealing um, the degree to which he's identifying with sinners. He's hanging on a sinner's cross, dying a sinner's death with a sinner on his right and a sinner on his left. And one of the deepest descriptions about what the cross means comes from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to these words I'm about to read. These are not the words of John Mark. I'm reading from the Bible. These are the words of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Talking about the cross says God made him that is Jesus. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The baptism of Jesus is anticipating that. Death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, in Scripture, water is frequently a sign of God's judgment, which precedes and leads to God's salvation and renewal. Think about some of the big stories in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 6, you read about the flood, or you heard that story in Sunday school. What's happening in Genesis chapter 6 is that the people that God has created to walk with him have rebelled against him. They've chosen evil and violence and all kinds of wickedness and oppression. God has pleaded with them to turn back, but they've rejected God. And so finally, God sends judgment. He sends the waters that wipe out so many people. And yet God preserves a remnant by grace. The waters are God's judgment. Or you can think of that other famous story from Exodus chapter 14. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt and they cried out to God asking for his mercy. God saw them. God heard them. God cared about them and he led them out of slavery into freedom. But then Pharaoh and his big armies decided we don't want to lose our slaves. So they went in pursuit of the children of Israel. And you remember the story. God parted the waters of the Red Sea so that his people could pass through on dry land. 
But then when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, chased them, what happened to the waters? They came crashing down in judgment. And then the free children of God on the other side of the waters started dancing and singing. Miriam pulled out a tambourine and all the women were dancing and they sung a song of freedom because God had judged evil and brought them into freedom. Now, if we had more time. I would nerd out right now and show you all the little detailed, subtle ways that Luke tells the story of the baptism of Jesus in such a way as to make us think of the great flood and the Red Sea. Now, if you want to hear all that, just buy me coffee this week and I'll tell you the long version of the sermon. Okay. But for right now, I just want you to know those two stories. Luke wants them in our mind. Jesus goes down into the water, which represents God's judgment on evil. And he goes down into the water with all the sinners and for all the sinners. Do you see the image here? Jesus is God bearing God's judgment upon our sins. He goes down into the waters of judgment so that he can bring us out of the waters of judgment with him. Jesus goes to the cross so that we can rise with him. This is the sinless son of God becoming our sin so that we can be forgiven and cleansed and freed from the power of sin. Isn't Jesus good, family? Then when Jesus comes out of the water and begins to pray, three things happen. Text says, the heavens are torn open. The Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus like a dove. And then a voice speaks from heaven. These are three signs that are showing us something really important about who God is and what God is up to. First, the heavens are torn open. That's what it says at the end of verse 21. The heavens were opened. This is a sign that God is about to do a new thing. In the Old Testament, this is a frequent image. God, tear open the heavens and come down and save us. And it says here that that happens. Now, I don't know what Jesus saw. I don't know what John the Baptist saw. I don't know what the crowd saw. I don't know what it looked like. But the image here is of the, the sky getting ripped open and it's like, I don't know, something like an Avengers movie out of this other portal. God is coming through into our little realm to break through. And I know where some of us are thinking about that time when Captain America finally said Avengers assemble right now. So I apologize for that. Didn't mean to distract you. But here's the thing. The heavens in the scripture refers to the sky, but it also refers to the place of God's reign, the, the place of God's power of God's holy saving presence. And when he splits open the sky and, and the portal comes, what that means is the Lord God is about to visit his people in a new way. Heaven is about to break into earth in a new way. And what's that about? Well, let's look at the other two signs. First, let's look at the third one. Verse 22, the, the last part of the verse, the father declares Jesus to be his beloved son. Let's read it. A voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The voice, of course, is the voice of God, the father speaking to Jesus, God, the son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, this little power pack statement 
reveals to us the identity of Jesus and it reveals to us our identity in Jesus. We need to understand both of those things. It reveals to us the identity of Jesus and it reveals to us our identity in Jesus. It reveals to us the identity of Jesus because this human being who's walking among us is also God the Son who has eternally been with the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, beloved of his Father before the foundation of the world. And now he's come to earth. He became flesh and dwelt among us. One person here, fully God and, and fully human being who has come to save us. And God is revealing to us the identity of this person. He is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. That phrase, the Son of God, is rich with meaning. But at the deepest level, it's telling us who the Son has always been with His Father. But it's also telling us who we are because, Christians, here's something important you need to understand. When you confess your sins to God and say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, a lot of things happen. But one way to summarize all of them is by talking about union with Christ. The Apostle Paul talks all the time about being in Christ or in Jesus. You can picture it like this. Here's you, here's Jesus, and now you're coming together and you're wrapped up in him. So everybody say, in Christ. And what that means is there's a whole lot of stuff that Jesus deserves and Jesus is and Jesus gets. We don't deserve it. We aren't it. We don't get it. But because we're connected to Jesus, we're in him. Now we get what Jesus deserves. And he, the spirit begins to make us what he is. And one of the things that we get is adoption. If you are in Jesus and he's the beloved child of God, you're the beloved child of God. If you want to study this out this week, here's the little Bible study you do. You go to Ephesians chapter one and study verses four through six. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. I'm not going to read it right now, but I'll paraphrase now, and you can go study it this week. See, I'm not making this up. It says that before the foundation of the world, church, God chose to adopt you. He chose to bring you into his family because he loves you. And your adoption happens, the text says, in the beloved, which means Jesus is the beloved son. Jesus is the beloved son. And because you are connected to Jesus by grace through faith, now, you become that beloved daughter or son of God by grace. Which means to say God is our father is to say God is for us. God loves us. God is always protecting us. God is always providing for us. And this gives us a sense of courage. One of my friends, uh, Wes Lane, always likes to say, you need to remember that your father is the biggest, baddest bear in the woods. When you're walking around in the, in the woods and it feels dark and scary out there. Your father is the father of Jesus Christ. This declaration is telling us about who Jesus is, but it's telling us about who we are in Jesus and who God is. He's revealing himself now as our father who loves us as God for us. Everybody say God for us. Now, some of you are hearing this and thinking that sounds great, but I'm too sinful. You're thinking, I can't imagine myself as God's beloved child. I can think of Jesus that way, and maybe some of y'all, but I'm more sinful. Here's what you need to understand. Your sins have already been judged in the water. 
Your sins have already been judged on the cross. Of course, you don't deserve to be called a beloved child of God. Neither do I. It's not about what we deserve. It's about grace. Jesus has brought you up from the water and down from the cross and up from the grave. If you've trusted in him, if you've trusted in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. If you're if you've trusted in Jesus, your identity is a free and beloved child of God by grace. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, here's what we're saying. You don't have to do a million good things to get God to acknowledge you as your son. You just look at the cross of Jesus and believe in him. Put your faith in the son of God and God will declare you're forgiven. You are my child. I love you. With you, I am well pleased. Isn't God good? The voice declares this is my beloved son. And the third sign is that the spirit descends Second one that happens in your text. Look with me at the first half of verse 22. It says, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So the sky is ripped open. God comes down. God is invisible. But throughout the Bible, God appears to people. He reveals himself sometimes in a way that you can see. We call that a theophany. And here, the Holy Spirit does that in the form of a bird, and not just any bird, but a dove. So something that looks like a dove comes down and lands on Jesus. This fulfills a lot of prophecy. Again, if you want the four-hour version of this sermon this week, just holler at me. And I'll tell you about some more of the prophecy it fulfills. But I just want to read to you one of the prophecies it fulfills. When the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus, it's fulfilling Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read that text if you want to flip to it. And the reason I choose this of all the prophecies is because in chapter four, Jesus is also going to quote this prophecy and say it's fulfilled in me. So Luke wants us to think about this. We'll hear more about it in chapter four. But already the Holy Spirit has descended on him in bodily form. What does that mean? Well, it means the words of Isaiah 61, one and two are now being fulfilled, which says this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Who's talking here? Well, the prophet Isaiah is talking, but Jesus is going to say the prophet Isaiah is speaking prophetically about me. I am the fulfillment of these words. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, the spirit is showing us that Jesus is the anointed king and servant of the Lord who has come to be near to us in our pain and our brokenness, our poverty and our captivity. We were in jail and now empowered by the spirit, the son of God comes to be with us in our prison cell and to break us out from the inside. He comes to be with us in the waters of judgment so that he can lead us out. He comes to be with us on the cross, which condemns our sin so that he can bring us up from the grave with him. The spirit is revealing to us that Jesus, the son of God and servant of the Lord, is God with us. Everybody say God with us. He's coming to serve us and to set us free. But remember, I told you. Part of what it means to be connected to Jesus is that what Jesus gets, what Jesus deserves, now by grace, you get, and even though you don't deserve it. 
And one of the things that that means is if you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down on you. The Holy Spirit comes bringing freedom and power to your life. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you want to understand what that means, think again about verse 22. It says, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. What's up with that dove? Well, that's a very rich biblical symbol. The figure of the dove here is evoking two stories from Genesis. Some of you all memorized as kids the first verse of the Bible. It says this, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you remember the very next verse, the second verse of the whole Bible says this. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering or that could be translated. The spirit of God was brooding over the face of the waters. God created the world, but the text is saying at first it was dark It was chaotic, but the spirit of God was there. And this word, the spirit of God hovering or brooding, that's that's a verb that gets applied to birds usually. Like a mother bird that broods over her nest to take care of her little ones. And then as the story of Genesis 1 unfolds, the word of God and the spirit of God come into this dark, chaotic world and form it into a world of light and beauty and order and peace. Now, when ancient Jews read Genesis 1-2 and reflected on it, they would say, often, this, this Holy Spirit is here described as a dove brooding over the chaos of the primordial creation. Now, why, where did they get that? Why did they talk about a dove? Well, they got it from Genesis 8. I told you a second ago that the story of the baptism of Jesus is being told to us by Luke in a way that's evoking the story of the flood. And in Genesis chapter 8, after the waters of judgment come down, bringing decreation, wiping out evil from the world in order to start something fresh and new and beautiful, Noah sends out a dove. And when the dove doesn't return, it means the dove has come to rest, signifying that the judgment is over and the new creation has begun. The time of renewal has come. And so ancient Jews connected Genesis 8 to Genesis 1-2 and said the spirit of God is here being depicted as a dove, which is a sign of God's peace and God's presence, which comes bringing renewal of creation and renewal of life. The spirit is the Lord and giver of life, the Lord of creation. The spirit, the dove then became the symbol of peace and a new creation. Now, because of this moment in the Gospels, Christians traditionally depict the Holy Spirit as a dove. And this shows up throughout Christian art throughout the centuries and Christian hymns, Christian songs. I just want to mention to you one great poem. One or two of you in here may be familiar with Gerard Manley Hopkins poem called God's Grandeur. It's a poem that celebrates the beauty and goodness of God's creation. But it also talks about how sin brings so much ugliness into the world. Haven't you noticed that there's a lot of beauty and a lot of ugliness in the world? Well, it's beautiful because God made it, but it's broken and ugly because of our sin. And this poem celebrates the beauty and the joy of God's creation and then grieves for the brokenness of the creation. But it ends on a note of hope because of God's grace. And here's the last words of this poem. 
The Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Hopkins is saying to us, if your world feels dark and chaotic and desolate, just know the Holy Spirit is hovering right over you. And he's about to bring the peace and the life and the new creation of God. There's hope. There's hope. Now, Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit. On all of his disciples to anoint them and to dwell within them. The spirit is God dwelling within us, bringing us peace. The Holy Spirit is God dwelling within us, making us a new creation. The Holy Spirit is God within us, teaching us that we are adopted and deeply loved children of God. As Romans 8:16 says, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. These are this is one of many texts that teaches the work of spirit is deeply internal inside us. Your spirit is the deep part of you. It says the Holy Spirit comes to connect with your spirit, the deep part of you to say you are a beloved child of God. When you trust in Jesus Christ. Now let's step back for a second. And consider what God has revealed to himself or to us about himself. What does it mean to say that God is holy trinity? One God and three persons. This is not something cold and abstract and distant. This is God. Saying, I am father, son and Holy Spirit. I am God for you. I am God with you. I am God within you. This is God saying, basically, I love you, I love you, I love you. Everybody say, God for us. The Father is God for us. The Father is God loving us with a love that cannot be broken. The Father is God embracing us in Jesus as his beloved children, saying, doesn't matter what the devil says about you, doesn't matter what the world says about you, doesn't matter what the law of Moses says about you, doesn't matter what your own conscience says about you, doesn't matter what your family says about you, I say, you're my beloved child. That's the Father. The Father is God loving us and protecting us. Everybody say, God with us. The Son, Jesus, is Emmanuel, God with us. The Son is God coming near to serve us. And to identify with us as sinners, to be with us as the friend of sinners, to go into our prison in order to break it open from the inside and set us free. He is Emmanuel. And everybody say God within us. The Holy Spirit is God within us, coming to give us his peace and make us a new creation. Now, it's also true that the Father is God with you and God within you. And the Son is God for you and God within you. Because the Spirit is within you, the Father and the Son are within you. Because if you get any of God, you get all of God. But that's lesson two on the doctrine of the Trinity. Today's Trinity 101. And as I wrap up right now, my prayer for you right now and throughout this week is that you will hear this not as an abstract, distant theological concept, but as God speaking to you. Christian. I don't know what you're going through this week. I I do know what some of you are going through because you've told me. 
But a lot of you I don't know, and, and even those who have told me, I, I know I can't understand the depths of it. Going through broken relationships, going through financial struggles, going through spiritual problems, processing your trauma, going through depression, struggling with your faith, wrestling with doubts, wondering how you're going to pay your bills. And what God is saying to you today is, I am your father, which means I am for you and nothing that comes against you can win. I'm very good at paying bills. I'm very good at bringing my kids out of the darkness and into the light. Whatever you're going through, God is for you. I don't know what you're walking through this week, what kind of dark valley you might be going through. But here's God saying, I walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm with you in your darkest pain. I'm with you in the waters. I'm with you on the cross and I will bring you out of the waters into resurrection. And all day, every day, God is not only with you, but he's within you. He's closer to you than you are to yourself, as St. Augustine said. And the deep part of you, whether you're aware of his presence or not, doesn't really matter. Whether you're aware of it or not, he's there giving you peace, giving you strength, giving you grace, making you his new creation and ultimately doing something within you that's going to spill over to bring life and hope and peace and healing and new creation to other people. That's what God is saying to you. And before I wrap up, I just want to acknowledge again There's probably some people in this room who are thinking right now, cool, but I'm not a Christian. I'm just a big old sinner. Some of you came here spiritually searching, but you haven't trusted in Jesus. And you're saying, Pastor, I'm just a big sinner. I don't know if I can know God like this. Well, okay, let me take you at your word. You are a big sinner. But I have good news for you. And the good news is this. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is God who comes near to sinners to die on the cross for our sin and rise again. Here's all you got to do to be free and to know you're right with God. Right now, in your heart, you're looking at Jesus and you say, I'm a sinner. I need grace. Have mercy on me. Son of God, I believe in you. Rescue me. Forgive me. Help me to follow you for the rest of my life. Now, that's not the end of the journey. That's just the beginning of the journey. And you you got to learn more about the next steps about baptism and discipleship and all that's involved in that. But it's as simple as that. If right now, as I was saying those words, you look to Jesus in your heart and say, yes, I believe. Then God is saying something unbelievably gracious, though. All you did is sit there and believe God is saying now I am God for you, with you and within you. And there's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from me if you'll hold on to Jesus Christ. And then if you trust in him, all of us can Stand together and say, blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me in honor of God right now as I say a prayer for us? And then we're going to sing to finish. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. And as we sung earlier, as we say again now, we're in awe of you. There's so much about who you are that we cannot understand. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... We worship you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for being God for us, with us, and within us. We thank you for the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the light that shines in the darkness and cannot be overcome by the darkness. I'm praying that your spirit right now would illumine our minds and heal our hearts 
And, and right now that you would draw us up into the worship and delight and love that you are forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you would show us our identity as your children and free us to sing songs of praise and freedom. In Jesus' name we pray.